As I was reflecting on the passage for this morning, I, I realized again and again that blessings can really be a curse. I mean, if we're not careful, even the blessings that God provides us with, even the things that he surrounds us with, can really uh, take over our attention, our time, our devotion, and then in the end become a weight, a spiritual dead weight that, that can kill you. Um, I try to think of a, an example or an illustration, and if you were to go to any of my family reunions and ask for someone to tell the death by chocolate story, most of them will laugh, and some of them might vie for who gets to tell it first. I frequently take trips to Michigan to visit some family out there, and um, one of my cousins who lives there, some of you have met him, uh, his mother-in-law makes this amazing chocolate cake. Now, if you know me, I'm not a big pastry guy. I like, I'll eat it. When you invite me over and you have some, hint, no. Um, <laughs> I'll eat it, you know, but it's not like I go looking for cake. But this cake is, is special. I mean, she whips the frosting herself, the chocolate. She grew herself. I don't know. Do you grow chocolate? I don't know where you get chocolate from. She knows Willy Wonka. That's what it is. And uh, she, she makes this cake, and it is thick and rich, and the perfect moisture, the perfect texture is just amazing. And I had so many comments to say about this cake that, it would happen that every time I would come out there, they would surprise me with a cake. It wasn't a surprise anymore. I always knew it was coming. And so, Lucas, we have something for you. And sometimes she'd change it up with like a raspberry drizzle. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. You know, I like it just, you know, whatever. But they would, they would always try to make it better. And I'm like, you can't make it better. It's just awesome. One day I was with uh, my cousin. We were younger and we had like a xbox night you know where some guys come over pizza you play some games or whatever and it was just me my cousin and one of his friends and his friend's wife and uh he told me hey these guys are coming over they're bringing pizza and i told him you're not gonna give them any of my cake right and he's like ha, ha, and i'm like ha, ha. it was one of those like i'm joking but not really so my cousin took it seriously. He's like, man, I better not give away any of Lucas's cake. And there was like half of it left or something, you know. I was just thinking, I'm going to take it home and spread it out. That's my Wednesday piece, my Thursday piece. You know, it was ridiculous. So the guy comes over. He buys pizza. It's on him. He's supplying us with pizza and everything like that. Now, here's where my cousin and I remember the story differently. His version, I'm a total complete jerk. <laughs> my cousin says... I, I get up, and I go grab some cake, and I come back and eat it in front of them. I don't offer anybody. I don't remember that, but I'm probably depraved just enough. I'm probably depraved just enough to do something like that. So my cousin goes, man, that cake looks so good. So in between one of the games or one of the rounds or something, you know, my cousin goes to the kitchen, and he's like, I'm going to have some cake, but I'm not going to bring it back and eat it in front of my friend because then my friend's going to ask, and if I give it to my friend, then Lucas is going to be upset. I have no idea this is what's going through his head or what, what's going on in the kitchen. I'm just like, boy, Miguel's taking a long time. Later, I find out what happened in the kitchen. He's got this dilemma. He really wants this cake, but he doesn't want to bring it back out there, and he doesn't want to take too long because if he takes too long, then they might start wondering where he is, and if they come into the kitchen, they're going to be like, dude, you're weird. You're eating chocolate cake by yourself in the kitchen? Well, I didn't want to offer any because Lucas is a jerk. <laughs> so he starts eating this cake, but it's not, a, it's not like a... Twinkie, you could just like chalk it down. You, you need 
You need milk, you need water, something. It's just so thick. So he's looking at the rest of this piece. He's realizing he's taking way too much time, and he just puts the whole thing in his mouth. He's trying to just get this thing down. He can't breathe. <laughs> he can't swallow it. He can't chew it. He, he's, he can't spit it out. It's just right in that spot where he can't, this stopping up the windpipe. He's turning red. He's turning blue. He's hitting himself in the chest. He's looking around to see if he could throw himself on something for like an impromptu Heimlich maneuver. Uh, eventually, he got it out. He survived. He comes back. We don't know anything about it until way later. And he's like, man, that cake almost killed me. What are you talking about? Well, you didn't want to share it, so I had to stuff it down. I tried to stuff it down. I almost died. Death by chocolate. So next time my cousin comes out to visit and you see him here, bring it up. He loves telling that story. Uh, he emphasizes a little bit more uh, how I ate the cake in front of his friend, but whatever. And then afterwards, I told him, I told him, hey, man, I never said, I was kidding. He's like, were you kidding? I don't know if I was kidding. <laughs> the issue that I realized, though, with that cake was not that I don't like sharing cake. It's that I didn't know if I'd ever see that cake again. How, how long is it going to be before I come out here again? Miguel's mother-in-law can make that cake anytime they want, and that friend can come over anytime. I don't live in Michigan. I don't know when I'm going to come back. And so every slice that was eaten, even when I was eating the slice, I, I just kept thinking about, man, that's one slice less that I have to go. It's the rarity of the thing. And when I think how possessions possess us, when the things that we're blessed with control our decisions, I think one of the realities is that we view it that way. Look, here's how much stuff I have, and no matter how much stuff I have, there's, there's always less of it if I give some. Less of it if some gets stolen. I've got to protect this estate. I've got, to, I've got to wrap my arms around the stuff that I have and be careful with it and hold on to it and be stingy with it and cling to it because if I don't, I don't know when I'm going to see that blessing again. I don't know what tomorrow's going to have. What if the stock market crashes? What if America, you know, is attacked again? What if, what if this? What if that? What if the other thing? And so let me cling. Let me attach. Let me hoard. Let me hold. And that kills the spirit of the Christian. So we're going to look at today in Genesis chapter 13 is two men with abundant blessings that respond to it differently based on their faith. Genesis chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible, you could slip your hand up and we'll get you a Bible. Um, but whether you are in a print Bible or electronic, smartphone, iPad, whatever you have, Genesis, first book of the Bible, and we're in the 13th chapter. Genesis chapter 13. And this, this is a, an episode in Abram's life where we see how blessings can be a trap. It begins like this. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negev. Now when you think all that he had, it's not like, and all his boxes with books in it and trinkets for the china cabinet, we're talking people, cattle, herds, servants, men, women, children, tents, all kinds of things. He has a people with him at this point. And Lot does as well. So they're sojourning back to the land that God had promised them. The famine's a history, a history now. Verse 2. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, 
and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning. Between Bethel and Ai to the place where he had made an altar at the first. He goes back to that original altar that he constructed to worship the Lord. And what does he do? And Abram called upon the name of the Lord there. So the story begins with Abram's worship as he returns to the land. This is the land that God promised me. God is a promise-keeping God. I'm going to worship this God. Verse 5 provides the contrast. Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Well, you know, that land, that promised land is pretty big. Why don't they just spread out? Well, at that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. There were already inhabitants there, and they've got the best stuff. So they're just kind of squeezing in. Uh, they're, late, they're late to the game, so they've got the bad parking spots. Okay, and So they're just dealing with what they have. And so there's strife. Their herdsmen are arguing. No, that's my Terry. My cattle were grazing there first. That's my spot. That's not yours, but you had the spot yesterday. It's my turn. Back and forth, the strife builds because they have all this stuff and not enough land to hold it. And so when they realize that this is a big problem, Abram decides to make a decision. Verse 8, Then Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we're kinsmen. Right, Lot's his nephew. It's like we're, we're brothers. We're family. We shouldn't have, we shouldn't have this. So let's, let's make a decision here. Let's come to a resolution. Verse 9. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. Now, if you look at it initially, it just looks like, hey, do you see all this land? Separate yourself from me, like he's a jerk. No, he's actually, he's, he's being uh, generous. He's being kind. He's, he's saying, look at all this land. There's no need for us to be in each other's face all the time. Let's spread out a little bit. Let's split up. We'll be next to each other, but not on top of each other. But I want you to have the first choice. If you pick the west, I'll go east. You pick east, I'll go west. It's up to you, Lot. Survey the land, tell me where you want to go, and I'll take the other people, my people, to the other side. Now here you have a man who has been promised the land. So if, if anybody had the right to hold on to their cake and say, that's mine. You know, people say, you want to have your cake and eat it too. I'm thinking, what else am I supposed to do with cake? <laughs> yeah, I want to eat it, you know? And God promised him this land. This is a land that's promised to his people, to his seed. Lot, get out, you know? No, that's not what he does. He gives Lot the choice. What does Lot do? Well, Lot lifted up his eyes, verse 10. He lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the Garden of the Lord. That must have been what Garden of Eden was like. Look how lush that is. Like the land of Egypt. In the direction of Zoar. So Lot lifted up his eyes and saw how lush this piece of land was. And he's like, man, that is, that is nice. I want that. He closed his eyes and he imagined the white picket fence with the spotted dog and 
the swing set in the front yard, you know, and his kid swinging on the tire, and he just has the whole thing mapped out. It's so beautiful. It looks like a postcard. I want that. But before we see his decision, the author puts a little note here. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, for those of you who've read the Bible before, or you've seen Bible movies, you remember that Sodom and Gomorrah was so bad, so wicked, that God eventually destroyed it. But Lot chose it. Verse 11, so Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Uh, that's a smoother reading in English, but in the Hebrew it, it says wicked and sinners against the Lord, great. I mean, it's just a cascading effect of emphasis on how bad things were in Sodom. Now, everywhere you go, there's people that sin. Everywhere you go, there's messed up people. But this was exceedingly great in their wickedness. If you read further into Genesis, you'll see details concerning that. But it was horrible. And Lot moves there. Lot becomes a neighbor there. Not caring that this is a spiritually dangerous situation, he just sees the grass and wants to move his cattle there. He sees the land, it's lush. He sees less problems, less issues. He sees an easier life, and he goes for it. Regardless of the neighbors that he's surrounding himself with. And so when Lot makes that decision... Abram acquiesces, that was the deal. And Abram goes to the land that's less lush and less uh, comfortable. When you look at this paragraph about Lot, you see the pattern that he follows. And it's eerily similar to Eve's pattern. She saw the fruit, it looked good, she tasted it. Lot lifted his eyes, saw the land, chose it. It's, It's this lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, that prompts these kinds of decisions. And so he chooses this land. He grabs this land. Abram takes the lesser land. Why did Abram do that? Now it could just be that he's just a great guy. He's just a magnanimous type of guy. He's just so shareful. You know? He just loves to share And we could just kind of stop there, you know, read the story to our kids and be like, so that's why you share your toys, all right? I mean, that's that's a good point. That's a good moral. That's a good value to have. But why is he like that? Why does Abram do that? Well, Because Abram understands God's promise. Abram is not clinging to earthly, now temporary promises. He's clinging to something that God put out in the future, and he's just saying, trust me, you'll get that. So, in a sense, Abram knows even if Lot moves, it doesn't matter where Lot moves, the land is mine. It doesn't matter how wicked or great the, the, the people living in Sodom and Gomorrah, how they, eventually it's going to be my people. I'm, just, I'm trusting God with that. So, like one author read, that I read this week, he says, Abram could just give it away a hundred times, he'll always get it back. Because God said it's yours. That's what he's clinging to. He's clinging to that promise. Rather than clinging to stuff, he's clinging to the promise, and that allows him to have a looser grip on stuff. 
And so when Abram does that, God confirms and affirms that promise. Look at verse 14. The Lord steps in and responds to Abram, almost like that was a test. Good job. Here's what I want to say to you. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can be also counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. Okay, so that's the reaffirm. That's not a new. That's not a news flash for Abram. It's an affirmation of what he already knew. He's saying, "Good job, Abram. You clung to it. I'm telling you, I'm going to give this to your descendants forever. This is a forever promise." For Abram. Now here's the interesting part. When we look at this, we go, okay, Abram got promised a land, but I didn't get promised a job. I got to cling to my stuff because what if I lose my job? Abram got promised that land. He heard it from God himself, but I wasn't promised a house. How, what, what if I'm not able to make those payments? Don't I have to cling to this stuff over here? Shouldn't I maybe give a little bit less, at least in the season, at least in the season, because if I give too much, I might be compromising tomorrow. Well, we have to understand that promise. Now, when God says your inhabitants will have that promise forever, we know the world comes to an end. How can that promise possibly be intact out into eternity? Well, because we have to string along all the promises together. And remember when we talked about a couple of weeks ago, like when you're watching a movie and you pause the DVD and you see that timeline there and you see the, the time at the end, that's the length of the movie, and then you see dots like those are the scenes, and then you have a little cursor and that's where you are in the movie. Abram's way here in the beginning, first scene of the movie. We're over here toward the end. And then after Jesus comes and judges, that timeline keeps going out into eternity. And there's a thread that connects all of the scenes in the movie. And that's God's promise. God created Adam and Eve, man, to worship him. They failed. They fell. And God steps in immediately with a promise in Genesis 3.15. This serpent that has enmity against the woman and and her seed, he's going to bruise the heel. He's going to bruise the heel of the one seed that comes from the woman. But that one seed that comes from the woman is eventually going to crush the head of that serpent. he's He's not talking about what to do when you go hiking. This isn't zoology, you know, 101. He's talking about a grand scheme that's unfolding over the course of history. That there's an enemy that doesn't want us to worship God, that wants us to fall away from worshiping God. But God is going to send the seed to come and reestablish, reconnect us with worship with God by defeating that enemy. Now, every promise that you read throughout the book of Genesis fits underneath that Genesis 3.15 problem. It's very vague. A serpent crushing, a bruising, and a serpent's head gets crushed. It's very vague. But then God starts filling in details, and you see Christ's fingerprints throughout the entire book of Genesis. And God's ultimate promise. Why is there land? Why is there seed? Why why is he picking a nation? So that one would come to be the king, not only of that nation, but would bless all the families of the earth. The promise in Genesis 12. This is about blessing all the families of the earth. The ultimate blessing is Christ. And in that sense, we share the promise. We don't share exactly all the specificities of the promise, but the ultimate fulfillment of the promise, we share. The ultimate fulfillment of that promise is Jesus Christ. That's the promised seed. 
Now, Jesus Christ promises to not just save you, but he told his disciples, I'm going to prepare a place for you. In other words, this earth isn't all that you have. The stuff that you cling to, that's not all that you have. Stop clinging to the stuff and cling to things of eternal importance. Jesus taught that over and over and over and over again. So we see ourselves in this passage. We see ourselves in that spot where you can live a life like Lot. You can look and behold and see what's in front of you right now. You can look and see what's ahead of you right now. What's in your bank account right now. What you have right now in the moment. And cling to it. And cling to it. And then come to church and kind of like, God, I love you. This is great. Man, I'm really glad I have this stuff. Or you can choose Abram's route. And go, wow, stuff is great, but you know what? I could live here. I could live there. doesn't really matter. Because in the end, I've got God's promise. That's a big difference. Non-Christians should look at the lives of Christians and go, how in the world are you not stressed out? How in the world can you give like that? How in the world can you not be so clingy with stuff? And that should be the opportunity to tell them about eternal promise that we have in Jesus Christ. When we trust God's provision, we escape the possessions trap. The trap of possessions possessing us. We escape that trap. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 6? He was talking about not being anxious not being worrisome. Don't worry. It's a command. Don't worry about tomorrow. In there in Matthew 6, verse 19 and 20, says, Don't lay up treasures for yourself on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Instead, the next verse, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break and steal. Jesus is picking up on this principle that we see early on in Genesis. You can cling to the promise or you can cling to stuff. You can't cling to both. That's why Jesus, in the same sermon, said you can't worship God and money. You worship one or the other, but you can't worship both. And how do we worship things with our time, with our energy, with, the, with what we invest our energy into? We can invest it all in accumulating things and getting stuff. Or we can go, man, it, it doesn't really matter. Now imagine... I lived at home, and we had, I don't know, an elderly grandmother or something like that that lived with us. And every Saturday afternoon, she makes that chocolate cake. Then I, if that were true, I wouldn't have that story that I had in Michigan. I would have been like, sure, have the cake. It would probably be old by the time I get home anyway. Saturday, I'll get a fresh one. See, when I realize I have an abundance of it, it's easier to share. And so what we need to realize when we feel a little clingy with our stuff, we need to realize this isn't everything, guys. This, this isn't everything that you have. This isn't everything that you are. God has promised heaven. Uh, and heaven is not some floaty place where you're floating around and there's halos and wings and harps. No wonder why nobody wants to go to heaven. You know, like, oh, I don't care, whatever, heaven, hell. But you ask people in the street. Some people are just indifferent. You know, they're just hoping hell is just kind of boring. But they know heaven already sounds pretty boring. Sitting on a cloud and playing a harp? I don't even know how to play a harp. That sounds ridiculously boring. When you read the Bible, it's not about heaven. It's about the new earth. It's an actual physical earth where you get to run around and jump and enjoy health. And you wake up in the morning, your knees don't crack. You don't have to put your contacts in because you can see everyone's 20-20. I mean, it's amazing. Nature is brought back into reconciliation. There's, there's no getting bit by sharks when you go swimming. There's no bears in the woods. That, well, there's bears, but you can ride them, you know? <laughs> Guys, that's pretty amazing. I wouldn't even believe it. 
if Jesus didn't promise it, and I still wouldn't believe it if Jesus didn't seal that promise by dying and rising again from the dead like he said he would. Now, if Jesus rose from the dead, all that he said about the new earth is going to happen. And that's the kind of stuff we see described. A new earth. Reality. Not fluffy clouds and vague images of people that you can't really see. No. It's a real place. Real things. Real land. Real dwelling places. And Jesus said, I want you to store up for that. But if you store up for here, you're going to compromise that. You'll get less of it or you won't get it at all. Do you remember when Jesus said it's difficult for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven? It's like a camel going through the eye of a needle. Why? Because the more you invest in this life, you make this life your kingdom. You make this life your world. And you become the king of your realm with all the stuff that you have. And that dethrones Christ. You can't have Christ on the throne of your heart if you're worshiping stuff. Now, some of you may be in here and you go, man, I don't have a lot of stuff. Go preach this like up in Northbrook or something. Right? Go on a missions trip to some place outside of America and come home and realize all the stuff that you have. Now, I don't know personally everybody's situation, but I just think of the American dream, you know, to, to have, so many of us have a separate room that is only used like twice a year because we expect Michael Jordan to come over sometime. And that's only the furniture for Michael Jordan and his guests when they eventually come. Or, you know, the president and his cabinet when they come. But no one else is allowed to sit on those couches. No one else is allowed to step on that carpet. There's dinnerware just for that time. We've got dinnerware, lunchware, breakfastware. We've got his and her plates. We've got, you know, multiple vehicles. We've got all kinds of stuff, guys. Oh, that broke. Ah, I'm going to Target. I've got to buy another one. We're rich. And we convince ourselves that we're not rich by comparing ourselves to the guy down the street that's got the bigger house. But we're not looking at the people all over the world that have way less than we have. If you think that you're not in the danger of being possessed by your possessions, you're foolish. You have a lot. We have a lot. And it's not wrong to have stuff. It's not wrong to have stuff. The problem is when we hoard it or we're misers with it. Christians should never be hoarders and Christians should never be misers. You've seen that show Hoarders. Some of you have seen the show Hoarders where people have, uh, it's a problem. It's a psychological problem most of the time. um, And they just collect things. I don't want to get rid of that. I don't want to get rid of that. Now, a lot of us look at that show and we do the comparison trick again, right? (laughs) I'm not that crazy. (laughs) I'm not that, okay. But I mean, if you have like an entire attic just full of boxes full of things that, you know, if I ever have that Mexican-themed party, I'm going to need those piñatas, you know? <laughs> and you got a whole box full of it. I mean, do, do we need that, or can we turn that into a living space and put a missionary in there? I don't know. I don't know if that's possible. <laughs> but use it for something else besides storing up for that party that you might have one time. You know, the, the, the relics of the past that we hold on to because we want to grab them and cuddle them and, and have them transport us to the past. I don't know why we cling to a lot of things. But there are usually reasons that have very little to do with kingdom work. There are usually reasons that have very little to do with advancing God's work in this world while the time is running down and we're getting to the end of the last scene. We're worrying about stuff that doesn't last past that last scene. When the, when the credits roll, all that stuff is gone. And there's new stuff. How much of that 
have we been investing in? Misers are people that aren't, they, they don't necessarily hoard stuff because it's a whole other level. They're too cheap to buy stuff to begin with. They don't spend, okay? They just hold their money and they don't buy anything. And on the surface, they look very, um, very just good spenders, wise with their money, you know, whatever. But it's not that they're wise with their money. They worship money too. That's why they're penny pinchers. This is why they can't give. This is why it's hard for them to share. This is why it's hard for them to spend. Because they want to hold it and save it and keep it. They've got stuff buried in their yard. They've got secret bank accounts maybe. I don't know what they're doing. They've got safes, stuff in their mattress. They hide, they hold, they save, they don't spend. Because they're protecting themselves with stuff. They're comforting themselves with things that they've accrued and amassed over time. And if your life is like that at all, you may not be at that high level, like a level 10 miser, right? But you might be in that path somewhere. Maybe you're a one or a two, but but you can tell, yeah, I tend to cling. I tend to hold stuff. And guys, one thing that helps disrupt that is worship. Turning your focus from yourself to God. Look one more time at this passage before we close. Do you remember in verse 4, the way the story starts, Abram worships. He comes back to that original altar that he constructed and he, and he worships God. Now that worship prepared him to have the kind of faith that it took to make the choice that he made. He chose to give stuff away, to surrender his right to the better land because he clung to God's promise. How does he cling to God's promise? He's, he's in front of God, worshiping God, reminding himself of the promise, proclaiming to God the promises that were made to him. Worship is not just a feeling. Worship is proclamation. It's calling out. It's saying things. At the end of verse 4, Abram called upon the name of the Lord. Another way to translate that is he made proclamations in the name of the Lord. And then you look at how the story ends in verse 18. After the decision was made and Lot moved and Abram moved over, the Lord reaffirms the promise. And verse 18, so Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which were at Hebron. And there he built another altar to the Lord. Why does he build an altar to the Lord? To do what he did in verse 4, but in a different place. To worship him. To push after him. To pursue him. To make him the center and the focus of his life. That's why Jesus said you can worship God or money. But if you worship one, the other one gets displaced. It works both ways. If you turn your attention to Christ, his promises, is Jesus something real to me or is he just kind of a spiritual rabbit's foot that I carry around and when someone asks, I'm like, I'm not sure. Does it really bring me luck? I don't know. I just kind of grew up with it. He's real. And if he's really your king, then that means everything that you do is going to be through the lens of kingdom work, advancing Christ's kingdom. Now, I know today, you know, Many of you will go to lunch, and you're going, I can get the $10 meal, I get the $5 meal, maybe I should starve myself, I could use all the money and use to the poor, and we could drive ourselves nuts with where do we draw the line. Look first at the extremes in our lives. Where are the places in our lives where it's, it's most extreme? What are the chocolate cakes that are messing things up? What are the things that you really cling to? Andy Stanley said something once, he's a pastor in, in Atlanta, or in Georgia, I'm not sure if he's Atlanta. And he said something that struck me. He says, uh, never own anything. He, he said, I make it a point to never own anything that I'm not ready to give away. 
That's a tough one, guys. Right off the top of my head, I can come up with three or four items right now that I go, ooh, not that. Not, they may not even be the most expensive things, but they're treasures. They're treasures. That's the kind of life we need to live. Look at our lives and go, man, is there stuff that I just, I couldn't surrender. I couldn't give that up. It's too important. It's too, it's too helpful for me now. It, it brings me comfort now. It makes me think that tomorrow is going to be better. Then that's something that you're, that's strangling your spiritual walk with Christ. Because Jesus said, don't worry about tomorrow because God's got tomorrow, not, not your stuff. He takes care of the lilies of the field. He'll take care of you. When you cling to stuff, you're saying, God, I'm not sure what you're going to do, so let me cling. Let's use our resources to advance his kingdom.